This week at Hope Point. God loves sinners. God loves to forgive sinners. But God does not party with sinners. Instead, when the party is over, Jesus Christ is standing outside the nightclub, outside the hotel room, ready to receive the weary heart as it collapses in his nail-scarred hands. But when he saves the sinner, he always tells the sinner, don't go back to the party. Repent and turn from the world's party. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen to what Richard has to say to us from God's holy word. Every year, about 13,000 tourists board a boat from the port of Wakatane, New Zealand, and take an 80-minute boat ride out to, through the Bay of Pliny to the, to the island of Wakari. It's one of 12 active volcanoes the Pacific Rim. Once the boats arrive near Wakari, they board smaller little vessels that take them to the land. And once the tourists are on the land on the island itself, they stay just for a few minutes to get a snapshot of themselves standing in front of molten lava, a magma reservoir of liquefied rock. There in front of blurping mud pots and sulfurous vents, they snap photographs like this one. But beneath the ground where they're taking these pictures is a massive undersea active volcano. On December, December 9, 2019, 47 people were on Wakari when it experienced a hydrothermal eruption. It sent 12,000 feet into the air, all sorts of spewing rocks, some large, some small, and Steam, terrible steam. 22 people were killed, and of those who survived, most were severely burned. Three weeks before the outing, a New Zealand agency called GNS issued an upgrade of warning of volcanic unrest on the island. One woman said, after surviving this, if I had known there was any real danger, I would not have gone on the excursion. Another person said, I knew what could happen out there, but you don't believe it will happen. At least I watched a Netflix accounting of the rescue of the survivors on Wakari a few weeks ago. And it's just frightening to believe that there were no more warnings. The reason that we love the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, the, we, the reason we consider it a gift a book of love is because in 22 chapters, God is trying to warn the world of the erupting wrath of God to come. God's wrath did not erupt yesterday, obviously has not erupted yet today, but the book of Revelation says there will come a day where the eruption of God's wrath will be so severe that it will make all volcanic eruptions in history look minor compared to the eternal wrath when God erupts and judges the world. So the book of Revelation is a plea, a warning from God. It's a loving letter. Please turn to Christ who's made provision for you to escape the wrath of God. We began reading about that third warning in Revelation 15. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign. Seven angels with the seven last plagues. 
Out of the temple came the seven angels with seven plagues. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Out of the temple was filled with smoke. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one can enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. We said a couple things about the book of Revelation so far. It loves repetition and it loves the number seven. Seven being sort of a number in the Bible and outside the number of completion. It's over, full, and the reason why the book of Revelation is repetitive is it tells the same, the same story three times because it basically knows that we need to see how the world will end three different angles so that we'll be prepared. We wouldn't get it with the first telling. So about a year ago, we looked at the, the first set of judgments that bring the world to an end. They're called the judgments of the seal because in ancient times when a document, a very important document, uh, wanted to be kept from the public until the right time, it was sealed either with seven wax seals or seven cords of thread. So in the seal judgments, every time another thread was untied, God released another judgment on the earth. And then the end came and the church was gathered to heaven and we thought, well, that's it. It's over. And then all of a sudden, it started up again in Revelation chapter 8 through another series of judgments called the trumpet judgments. And once again, it was the same thing happening, just another camera angle. This time, seven judgments or calamities by God. Seven very severe things he'll allow on earth. At the end of which time, we see the church in heaven. It looked like it's over. God's people are home. And then, all of a sudden, we begin after the break, the holiday break, we begin studying Revelation 15. And we saw that there are seven other judgments, which are the same judgments just from another camera angle. These are called the bowl judgments. They begin with Revelation 15.8, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God. There's a few times where we see smoke in the presence of God, and it's always when His holiness is being revealed. And no one can get near. Isaiah couldn't enter the temple. When the smoke of God, the glory of God, His holiness was on display. No one can approach God at a time like this. The first time we saw it was in the book of Exodus when God first introduced himself to the world, to the people of Israel. After rescuing them from Egyptian slavery, he said to them, or we read this in Exodus 19, on the morning of the third day after their rescue, there was thunder and lightning, a cloud covered the mountain. Mount Sinai was in smoke because the Lord came down upon it in fire its smoke went up like the smoke of a stove, and the whole mountain shook. All of this lightning and thunder and smoke and shaking is a demonstration of how mighty and holy God is. No one could stand in His presence because of the magnitude of, of, his, of his greatness. If you don't understand this God of Exodus 19, the God of Isaiah chapter 6, and the God of Revelation chapter 15... You'll think it's no big deal that he has made a way for us to go to heaven. You'll think it's no big deal for humans and God to interact. You'll sort of think that we're sort of alike. We're like each other. 
But unless provision is made, no one can enter God's presence when His holiness and glory is filling the temple or heaven or earth. If you don't understand the God of the mountain of Exodus 19, you'll not appreciate the God of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was on a mountain called Calvary, a hill called Golgotha. God entered into human flesh and allowed himself to be nailed on a cross so that our sin would be forgiven, so that we would not be excluded from God, what would be allowed to enter in. If you don't understand Exodus 19... Revelation 15, you'll never appreciate Jesus dying for your sins on the cross. I was reading this week about Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe, Africa. Twice as long or twice as wide as Niagara Falls. And a fairly good bit higher, the drop for some of the water is 330 feet. 365 million gallons of water go over Victoria Falls every minute. David Livingston named it Victoria Falls because he was exploring there from England, named it after Queen Victoria. But the locals call it by another name, Mosiatunya, which means smoke that thunders. Because when the water drops 300 feet on the rocks below, it sends a mist about a thousand feet high covering, covering everything. So if you multiply Victoria Falls by 10,000 or 10 million or pick your number, you'll understand the, the magnitude and the majesty of God's holiness and His glory when it fills all of heaven and all the earth and no way sinners can enter into such power. You'd die if you were at the bottom of Victoria Falls with that water falling on you. And you would die if you were beneath the holiness of God unless Christ had taken away your unholiness, which he has. So Revelation chapter 15 and 16 is a warning, flee to Christ, because there's no way to be in the presence of this God of wrath when he executes his thunderous judgment. That's all it is. It's a warning, a loving plea. Don't. You don't have to put yourself in the presence of this God of wrath. Flee, and he warns us a number of times. This is the first one in Revelation 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. I told you before, heaven is loud because the glory of God is loud. Everything about God is loud. We need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. And this is why he... In the Old Testament, there was a man, really probably the first book of the Bible that's written is not Genesis. The first book probably is the book of Job. And Job figures out, how in the world can I as a sinful man ever into the presence, enter the presence of a holy God? Job is filled with suffering and pain, and he wants to, just, he wants to dialogue with God. And he says, how in the world can I do this? I can't be with God. We're so unlike each other. This is how Job says it. He is not a mere mortal like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If there were only someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together, 
Someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him. But as it now stands with me, I cannot. Job didn't know that thousands of years later, Jesus Christ would come and down across the perfect picture of holiness and love, clinging to God's holiness with one hand, clinging to sinful man with another, and there, suspended between heaven and earth, was the cross, a mediator that we could all walk across to God. Paul writes this in 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and one mediator, one bridge builder, one pontifex between God and mankind, the man, Christ Jesus. We need a savior if we could be in the presence of this thunderous, loud, holy God. He tells us of his wrath so that we will not experience his wrath. Verse 2, Revelation 16, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. There's a lot of suffering in the world that we can't understand, we'll never understand on this side of seeing God face to face. This suffering we do understand. For these people had given their allegiance and their devotion to the beast, which was a, a demonic, satanic representation of Satan on earth. They had weighed who was more worthy of our affection. Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died on a cross, or Satan, the destroyer of life. And they had given their allegiance to the beast. And therefore they were... God's wrath was poured out on them. Then there's a second warning in Revelation 16. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. When you read these particular plagues, I'm not suggesting that you take them all literally in the sense this is blood on the sea. The first thing you should do is that's a reminder of what did God do to rescue Israel from Egypt. And he turned the Nile River into blood. So when you read Revelation 16, what you need to see is these are all the things God is doing to rescue the church and bring us home. God is fighting against forces that are too strong for us. Then there's another warning. Revelation 16, 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. Again, this is very Egypt-like, God turning the Nile River into blood. So we really don't know what God's going to do to nature in the end days. We know he's already done a lot to nature. A lot of calamities occur through nature. We'll talk about those in a minute. So I don't know if there's really going to be, what kind of disruption there's going to be to the water system of the world. We've already seen unbelievable disruptions in commerce in the past six months or more. There's been great, even recently, great disruptions to commercial air flights. It makes no sense other than it looks like man is confused there was disruption to the supply lines, supply chain 
over the past year. Is this what God is talking about? We don't really know. But I want to answer a bigger question than trying to figure out specifically what he's doing right now. What I want to answer is why in the world would God ever judge his own natural order? Why would he destroy creation? It doesn't make any sense. That's like an artist spending months on a beautiful painting and then taking his hand in mud and slinging the mud all over the painting, destroying his own work. Why does God do this? Why natural disasters? Why are they a part of the warning system of God? Well, let me answer that by imagining this story. An artist paints a beautiful picture of a woman in a field by a river. He spends months on it. And then he takes that beautiful piece of art, puts it on exhibit at the most prestigious art gallery in the world. And one afternoon when the museum was quiet, several college kids came and they looked at his painting and they thought it would be funny if they just got out a Sharpie and made some little fish in the water that the woman was looking at. Right when they finished, they turned around and there was standing the artist. And they knew they were in a little bit of trouble, but for them, no big deal. Just little squiggly lines. Then the artist explained to the college boys that the painting was of his wife who had recently died of cancer. She went to that spot in the field by the river every day while she was sick. And to show you how offensive it is that you would have the audacity to mark up my painting he took, some, he took a, a pile of mud from a bucket and slung it on his own painting. It said, if you want to know how ugly you have made you, my painting of my wife to be through your lines that you said were harmless, the only way I can show you that is to by slinging mud on the painting and to say, I see your ugly lines as you see the mud that I just slung. No illustration is perfect, but we have to use human language to understand what God has done in history. God placed Adam and Eve in a beautiful, perfect garden and gave them the choice of doing anything they wanted except don't eat from one tree. And then he was so kind and so loving. He said, if you eat from this tree, you're going to bring catastrophic damage to the universe. He warned them. But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. You'll bring death to the world. But they thought, little squiggly line, eating one apple, no big deal. And then when they did it, God said to them, this is how offensive sin is is to me and with one word he damaged his entire earth 
This is how Paul says it in Romans 8. This is what God did after mankind sinned. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. It's not like the creation just messed up after Adam and he did that. God did it. But by the will of the one who subjected it. If that language is a little bit too lofty for you, we'll use the Richard Smith translation. For the creation was made defective. That's what the verse means. For the creation was made defective, not by its own choice, but by the will of God who pronounced a curse upon it. God did it. God slung mud on his own painting. He made the creation defective. So that mankind would understand how offensive it is to God when we use our lives to rebel against infinite beauty and goodness. We see it as no big deal. And had not God made the creation defective, we would never understand the depths of our sin. It's the only way he can cause us to see. So God's judgments on the earth are never arbitrary. They always come with a, a, a message, a purpose. And that is so that we will know how offensive sin is to God. You can see that by how damaged the earth is. We sin against God. All of us do because we think it's no big deal. That's why we do it. That's why we say it, look at it. And without something as clear and obvious as a damaged earth, we would never understand the crime against God when we rebel against him. Nor would we understand the mercy of God that even though we did that to his painting, he's willing to forgive us through the gift of Jesus Christ. We wouldn't even understand his mercy if we didn't know there was a need for mercy. Now let me say this. The message of every natural disaster is not that those who suffer are personally targeted by God. Through the centuries, some of God's finest people, I spend a lot of time reading missionary stories, some of God's finest servants overseas have died from natural disasters while serving the Lord around the world. So we must never view natural disasters or disease or death or evil things as God personally judging every person that's affected by it. It's just that we are all on planet Earth and now planet Earth is damaged because of God's decision to teach us, to show us what sin is like in His eyes. So now a damaged Earth affects us all. But even though we know that God's decision in Genesis 2 and Romans 8 and Revelation 16. All of these are Bible. Therefore we know they're right. But they still break our heart. We grieve when we see calamity. We grieve when we see catastrophe. In fact, we grieve 
just as Jesus grieved when he saw it. You remember his friend Lazarus died. And then he was going to that village to comfort his sisters. This is the account of Jesus arriving in Bethany. When Jesus saw one of his sisters weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. It's Jesus and God the Father working in unison to judge the earth in the beginning and to send calamity every day around the world in order to awaken the hearts and minds of those who are getting the message no other way. Repent while there's time. And even though Jesus sends these, he is, he weeps at this scene of death because he's grieving for those who are grieving even though he knows he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He still grieves over calamity. And yet he knows it's right because the world is hearing the message to repent no other way than through a recognition of our mortality. Well, the second message that comes from the judgment of God in Revelation 16 is that Jesus Christ will honor all those who teach such a message as this. The ego of this world, I don't even have to guess how the world feels about this message today. I hate that message. You telling me my sin my little itty bitty sin. I've worked all my life. I provide for my... You telling my sin merits God judging the world with calamity. Yes. Well, I hate that message. I know. Revelation knows too. And through the years... Because people did not want to hear the church preaching this message of the need to repent from sin, the world has tried for the entire existence of the people of God to annihilate the people of God. And God says, I'm going to reward my people for their diligence to keep saying the message. Revelation 16, 4, the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, you are just in your judgments. This was right decision to bring calamity on earth. The angel said this was right, hard, but right. Oh, holy one, you who are and who were, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. So the angel who watches the other angel pour out calamity on earth, said, God, you're right to do this because of how fierce the world has opposed your message when your church has tried to preach of the salvation of Jesus Christ for the deliverance and forgiveness of sin. And thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of believers through the years have died. And then there's another agreement to God's rightness. Verse 7, and I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Now we've seen the altar before. Revelation 6 says those who, Christians 
who had been slain, their blood shed for preaching Jesus, said they were under the altar and they cried out, Lord, how long is it going to be until you judge? And here they are again, Revelation 16, saying this was right. We say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't talk like that. I don't pray like that. Because you are not persecuted. You talk like that when they killed your family in front of you. True and just are your judgments, God. The, just, the judgment is not too much, is what they said. The third message that comes from God's judgments in Revelation 16 is a warning that eternal destruction is coming and you don't have to be a part of it. Just repent. Today. Just turn to God. You're alive. You have ears. You can hear. Look. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they, caused, they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. So God's given them every opportunity. Every time we see another natural disaster, a tsunami rolling in, a tornado rolling through, we say, I can't stop these things. Nature is stronger than I am. You would think, I should repent. I should be ready. You would think after 9-11, the whole country would have repented. After COVID, everybody would have repented. But they just continue to curse the name of God. They continue to mark up God's painting. God says, this is what marriage looks like. Put an X over it. This is what, how beautiful a baby is when he's born. Put an X over it. This is what men and women look like in their, the gender that I have designed. Put an X over it. Continue to mar God's painting with no fear, no repentance. Just continuing to curse God. Do you know how many churches there are in America? 300,000. That means 300,000 times every week, God is pleading with the world, repent. So, I mean, this country, 300,000 offers to repent every Sunday. But a lot of people say, you know what? I can't worship the Lord if he's a God who sends calamity. But if you trace the lives of these people back, before the calamity came, when their life was successful, they still were not worshiping the Lord. It wasn't the calamity. They cursed him when there was times of blessing as well. Just looking for a calamity as an excuse to continue their cursing. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. That's a lot of pain. You would think God could have gotten their attention with this much pain, but their hostility against God was so great they wouldn't repent. You know why people don't repent? It's because they don't want to. There is no excuse. They just don't want to turn to God. And this is why God sends all of these calamities throughout history because there's no other way to gain the attention of the world than to tell the world a greater calamity is coming. 
Prepare for it by turning to Christ. The book of Revelation is God's loving appeal to those who are deafest, who are most deaf. Today is the day. Repent. Come now. Look at how the world is. It's not pretty. Surely you could get the message now. You need a Savior. The world needs a Savior. God loves sinners. God loves to forgive sinners. But God does not party with sinners. Instead, when the party is over, Jesus Christ is standing outside the nightclub, outside the hotel room, ready to receive the weary heart as it collapses in his nail-scarred hands. But when he saves the sinner, he always tells the sinner, don't go back to the party. Repent and turn from the world's party. That's what repentance is. It's walking with Jesus the other way and it was the very first message he ever preached was repent. Matthew 4, 17, from then on Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus did not come to earth to condone our sin, to join with us in our sin, but to walk to a cross to die for our sin and to walk out of a grave to free us from our sin. Repent is his call. Leave it. Leave it. This is, the, this is half the gospel that is not readily preached in this culture. Believe in Jesus, half the gospel. Repent is the other half. So because we don't understand the repent part, let me, I just want to spend the last few minutes explaining what repentance is. First, by saying what it's not. Repentance is not regret that you got caught. Repentance is not embarrassment that you've been exposed for living a double life. Repent is not remorse that you made a bad financial decision that's hurting your family. Repentance is not self-pity you spend the rest of your life with self-hatred. So what is repentance? I'll give you a long definition, but so you'll stay with me one little glob at a time. Repentance is a sorrow over sin that leads you to turn to God. It is regret and it is remorse, but it is remorse that leads you to God. Repentance is not like just an addict saying, I should no longer do drugs because drugs are bad. But it's the addict saying, I have filled my life with drugs instead of filling my life with God. So repentance is not just quitting something. It is a turning to God, a person. Second definition. Repentance is a sorrow over sin that leads you to turn to God through confession to Jesus Christ. Use the word confession because confession implies I'm owning this. I'm not blaming anybody. I did this. I'm confessing this was on me. Nobody made me sin. I chose to do it. 
and you confess to Jesus Christ because you see this God of glory and holiness and you say, there's nobody else, that there is no other mediator that can take me into the presence of God except the Son of God. So I confess my sins to Jesus. You know, Judas, disciple, Peter, disciple, they both did the very same sin of betraying Christ. But they handled repentance in two different ways. Judas retreated to regret and remorse and did not repent, but took his life. Peter did the very same sin, experienced regret, remorse, but repented and came back to Jesus. And when he repented to Jesus, Jesus restored him in his role as an apostle, gave him the assignment of preaching the first sermon in Jerusalem after the Spirit of God came, and also called him to write two books of the Bible. He's ready to restore anyone who will repent. Third definition of repentance Sorrow over sin leads you to turn to, to God through sin, confessing to Christ. And finally, the final, and receiving the Holy Spirit's strength that you might love God and honor Him with your life. This part of repentance focuses on loving God. This is what all of life is about, is loving Him for being glorious and beautiful and holy. And loving him for sending Christ to die for our sins. And when you love somebody, you, you want to spend time with them. And so you receive the Holy Spirit into your life. You walk with God. And you, then you say, now I want to use my life for all the purposes for which God, Jesus Christ, has saved me. I want to honor you with my life. That's repentance. Some of you today may say, well, that's a complicated definition. There you go again, make it Christianity hard. Maybe I didn't make it hard. Maybe I just was a reminder to you in a way that you haven't been reminded to lately that repentance is hard. If you don't find repentance hard, you're not repenting. When a train is going 60 miles an hour down a mountain southbound, and it needs to go 60 miles an hour northbound. It takes a bit of time to stop that train, to break it, to turn it around, to go the other way. You give your life to Jesus Christ, he'll forgive you today. He'll enter your life today. And then he will escort you into a lifetime of repenting. Repenting is hard. You try it. If you're walking with the world today, you say, I'm going to repent. All your friends are going to say, what are you doing? You tell your body you're not going to do this anymore. Your body will say, what you doing? Your mind no longer fixated on these. What are you doing? And so the culture and your body and your mind make repenting hard. But it's interesting, it's possible, and it's measurable. When the Apostle Paul wrote his protege Timothy, he said, make sure everybody can see your progression in your faith. 
not your perfection. Did say that? Timothy, Richard, John, Ronnie, Fudd. Make sure three years from now people can see that you have progressed in repenting. Repentance is hard because our body is like easy. Repentance is hard because when you come back to God, you got to admit, my way didn't work. And can you imagine the prodigal son when he left his father saying, I got all this. And when he was in the far land, how hard it was to admit my way didn't work. It takes a lot of humility to repent. So why would anybody do it? Why would anybody do a hard thing? Why would somebody repent when their this is how, this is why, why people do it? You will repent when your eyes are open and you see that Jesus is better than sin, and Jesus is more worthy than anyone or anything on earth. Sin has not earned your trust. The world has not earned your trust. Jesus Christ has earned your trust. When you see that, you'll repent. Let me tell you this. You'll never repent if you do not believe that Jesus Christ wants you to come to him. That's what all of Revelation is about. All the Bible is about. A warning. So you will come to him. Let me tell you something. When you sin, you know the first thing Satan will tell you? Well, that's your last check of mercy that you can cash in Jesus' bank. He's done with you. Satan always says that. Jesus never says it. This is what Jesus says. John chapter 6. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Ever. This is what Casey and Judith and the children get to take to the Philippines. That verse. For my Father's will. This is God's will. What's God's will? I don't know what God's will. What's God's will for my life? Right here. This is my Father's will that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life and I'll raise Him up at the last day. Not to judge Him, but to bless Him. No one that ever came to Jesus in repentance was ever turned away. Jesus said, come to me, Matthew 11, all who are weary, all, and I'll give you rest. And then Jesus' disciple Peter said at the end of the Bible, the Lord is patient with you. 21 centuries of patience. Now, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Gosh, look at this. How patient is God? He's been waiting for one more person to repent. Now, 21 centuries. And I think today he brought some of you in here to say, I've believed all my life, but I haven't repented. I haven't turned to God through Jesus Christ and yielded my life to the Holy Spirit. I've only believed. I've not repented. Today, Jesus is here for you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.